Nate, how's Vegas? It sounds like you had a very late night Friday night. Not in a particularly fun way. I was just playing in a poker tournament. So, yeah. I mean, not that poker isn't fun, um, but yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, isn't that's not fun? Then what are you doing, Nate? <laughs> it's in the uncanny valley between fun and work. Oh. Yeah. Story of my life. You know what they say, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life? Oh, it's the worst advice I've ever heard. Yeah. Do what you love and then you'll never love anything. <laughs> yes. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Frick. Who gets the blame when gas prices go up? And what are the political consequences for whoever that is? Last week, President Biden announced that the United States would ban imports of Russian oil and warned that it would mean an increase in prices at the pump. The cost of gas was already on the rise, and now it's even higher. The average cost of gas in the U.S. today is $4.33 per gallon. A year ago, it was $2.86, according to AAA. We're going to talk about what high gas prices have meant for politics historically and some of the debates in Washington over how to bring those prices down. We're also going to mark two years since the pandemic shut down the country by looking at some of the ways American life has changed during that time. It's a sad milestone. Nearly a million Americans have died from COVID-19. It's also a milestone about how our lives have changed. We're going to concentrate on the latter today and try to lighten the mood a little with a trivia game. So, for example, what percentage of Americans adopted pets during the pandemic? And how do people say it changed their romantic relationships? We'll get to that. And of course, we have a good or bad use of polling example. We all want to make polls more accurate. So could flipping a coin while asking the questions help? We'll get more into that. And speaking of flipping, we're going to flip the script a bit and get to that at the end of the show today. So here with me to discuss it all is Editor-in-Chief Nate Silver. Hey, Nate. Hey, everybody. Also here with us is Senior Science Writer Maggie Kurth. Hey, Maggie. Hello. And Editor Santul Nakar. Welcome, Santul. Hey there. So, Nate, it's been a minute. How's the book coming along? Pretty good. I have like three interviews tomorrow, another on Thursday. So yeah, I'm in Vegas for like more productive reasons than usual this time, but it's good. Okay, fair enough. Have you gotten Elon Musk to agree to an interview yet? No, we've reached out. Elon Musk, if you're listening to this podcast, if you're someone who knows how to contact (laughs) Elon Musk, drop me a note. Uh, I would love to talk to Elon Musk. I've talked to people who are friendly with Elon Musk, and I could ask them, but I usually like to go directly instead of through friends of friends. Have you tried tweeting at him yet? It seems a little cringe. <laughs> a little gauche? Mm, too cringe. It is a little cringe. But I will at some point. Last ditch effort, it might be worth it. Or maybe we could just get the listeners of this podcast to start tweeting at him to uh, talk to you. Hey, Elon, man, just follow me on Twitter, Elon, and then I'll DM you, and you're, you choose the time and place, and we'll talk. Okay, good luck with that, Nate. But let's now turn to something slightly less fun, gas prices and the politics of gas prices. So in a country with rapidly rising prices, gas is one of the most clear and obvious signs. You can find the price plastered on street corners and throughway billboards. You might even say that it's evidence of inflation writ large. Okay, none of you were here last week, so this is just a joke between me and the listeners. But apparently... I have been using the expression writ large incorrectly for years, and a listener finally wrote in to tell me that. So I think that might have just been the first time I ever used writ large correctly on this podcast. However, you know, if I'm still getting it wrong, let me know. Wait, what's it mean? What were you doing before? 
I was using. Is this going to come back to like every time I'm on here? There's some sort of weird <laughs> phrasing that Galen is using that actually like no other human does. <laughs> like the last time I was on here, you were talking about f-ing puppies. So like I don't I don't really understand like how you learn how to talk. <laughs> is this the podcast where we learn that Galen is actually illiterate after all of these years <laughs> speaking for a living? So I was using writ large to say in general, writ large actually means big and obvious or sort of exemplifying oh. situation. Okay. See, I thought you meant it was like written in big letters because like if you go by the gas station and it says 729 I mean, a gallon. <laughs> by the way, I have a question. Apart from when I talk to Elon Musk, right? What happens if gas goes over 999 a gallon? Can the signs accommodate it? I'm sorry. Isn't that weird? Do you know what I mean? If gas is like 1042 mm. a gallon, because I looked at this, I looked at some specs for like some common, I don't know why I did this, but like, I don't think they have a good way to handle it. Is that likely though at this point? Like, isn't the average like four something right now? Yeah, I think we're a long way California. off California. Oh, really? It's higher in California? Oh yeah, it's almost, I mean, you know, at one gas station in West Hollywood, it's almost $7 or something like that. But I okay. think, what if you just put a zero isn't that obvious? Wouldn't you just put zero and then the cents? Have you met the American people, Galen? People are like, well, zero dollar gas. I'm going to pump all my tanks full. No, I don't know. I you don't can't. think anyone. What do you mean? Have I met the American people? I have. <laughs> the American people are very smart and would not assume in an environment where gas is really expensive that they were actually selling it for 22 cents. <laughs> McDonald's handled that point where they had to like flip over from like 99 million serb to millions and millions. So I think we'll figure out a way through this. So gas industry, please consult with McDonald's. <laughs> Always buy another digit on your signs, guys. You never know, right? <laughs> Always buy another digit. Invest in that third digit. It's going to be worth it. <laughs> Life advice with Nate Silver. Exactly what we needed on a Monday morning. Always buy signs with an extra digit. Okay, we got really sidetracked there. I hope that I used writ large correctly. If I didn't, I'm sorry, but we're just going to have to go with it. Okay, so this is, of course, not the first time that we've seen high gas prices in America. So we have some evidence of how voters will respond. There's also a debate over how the U.S. should respond from a policy perspective, which we will get into. And I'll say that we have plenty of expertise on the pod today. Santul, you published a piece on the site titled Why Americans May or May Not Blame Biden for Higher Gas Prices. Maggie, you have written an entire book about energy in America titled Before the Lights Go Out, Conquering the Energy Crisis Before It Conquers Us. And Nate, you have done many deep dives on the relationship between politics and the economy over the years, I think dating back to like the 2008 election. So let's talk about this. Santul, let's begin with you. Historically, how do gas prices shape Americans' views of political leadership? Right. So we know that there's a significantly negative effect of gas prices on presidential approval. Now, when I say significantly negative, that doesn't mean that it's the only thing that affects presidential approval or that a 10 cent increase in gas prices leads to like a one percentage decrease in presidential approval. I don't think it's fair to say that and research has not found that. But it does appear that American voters tend to view presidents who preside over increases in gas prices significantly worse than those who don't. And so I think it's fair then to to look at the current moment, the current political moment in which gas prices have risen significantly, in large part due to the Ukraine crisis. But gas prices were rising before then and wonder how that is going to affect Biden's approval. So before we get into that specifically, why do we see this direct relationship between gas prices and presidential approval? Well, one, I think, obvious reason is that when you think about inflation and like in general price increases, 
gas prices are among the most obvious things to American consumers, right? You can't escape it. When you're driving down the highway, as the you know old saying goes, you see gas prices, you could be driving on the same road like for a month and you see gas prices rising right in front of you. So that's one reason that people have sort of theorized that gas prices play a big role in, let's say, something how Americans look at inflation expectations. So Americans who have, let's say, lived through the crises of the 1970s as it relates to oil, they tend to have worse inflation expectations after seeing rising gas prices, and they tend to rate the economy even worse, too. So that's one really clear example or one really good explanation for why gas prices play such a big factor in in people's appraisement of the economy. Another thing is that everybody needs gas in the same way that everybody buys groceries. And gas prices are something that affect everybody who drives a car, which is most of the United States. And also even people who don't, right? I mean, Maggie, maybe you're more of an expert on this, but gas prices in some ways affect the cost of everything in America because everything has to make its way to the store from the port or whatever. Well, and also, I mean, if we're talking about the cost of petroleum, you know, functionally, that's what we're talking about, not just the gasoline you put in your car and everything is made out of petroleum. I think we often lose track of just how much of the stuff we buy is related to that. I mean, everything from fertilizers that we're using for food production to plastics to all sorts of different chemicals, like everything has this petroleum basis. And if the cost of that is going up, that's going to affect more than just the gasoline in your car. So, Nate, in terms of how voters respond to the price of gas rising or inflation in general, does it play a unique role in politics? Do gas prices loom larger than, you know, the unemployment rate or other things that drive consumer sentiment and political consequences? So there's not really enough data to say. Economic variables are highly correlated to one another. They're also correlated with important policy developments. If gas prices shoot up because there's a war going on, for example, the gas prices might have an effect, but so might the war. What we do know, though, is that in recent times, when you've had higher inflation, it was bad news for the incumbent president. So the most obvious example is Jimmy Carter in 1980. Inflation was around 13%. Average out for the year in 1980, he lost in a landslide to Ronald Reagan. 1976, you also had fairly high inflation. Gerald Ford was a one-term president. In 91, you had some stagflation amid the Gulf War. Bush was a one-term president. So the track record's not real strong when, when inflation's high. If you go back further, you also find years like after World War I and World War II, you had high inflation. That might have some comparisons to the current situation if Europe is again at war. But there are good reasons why people in democratic circles are nervous about the effect on Joe Biden's presidency. Is it fair to compare the situation we're in today to the 1970s, both from the perspective of how bad inflation or how high inflation is and how high gas prices are, and in terms of how it might shape our politics. There are some tempting parallels between now and then, but I think there are also some very clear divergences. For one, as as you sort of allude to, we are far less dependent on foreign oil now than we were then. And specifically when it comes to Russia, we're not particularly dependent on them. And also, we were very dependent on OPEC back in the day. And if OPEC decided to raise the price of oil, you know, that that could essentially be it for how it affected the American consumer. So America is not nearly as dependent on foreign oil as it was back then. That being said, an increase in foreign price of oil still could have pretty significant effects back home. 
I mean, that's kind of where I land also. Like, in terms of severity, this is a more complicated situation, I think, in so much as like, it's not just a supply and demand issue. It's not just a one country has decided to raise the cost of this stuff issue. One of the big things that is kind of happening here is that you have the fact that crude oil is a market in the same way that a stock market is a market. And the prices go up and down based on things other than just cold, hard facts about supply and demand. So like some of the cost increases that we're seeing are traders getting anxious about what might happen in the future. And that ends up then not going down very quickly when things change, because then all these different players along the line are making higher profits and they don't want to give those up anytime soon. It's a much more complicated system because, as Santul said, the U.S. is actually a net exporter of oil at this point. You know, we are not dependent on any one of these markets. It's not just a direct, these people raise the price, these people make this less available. And I mean, and also like we're not standing in line based on our license plate numbers for a day of the week that we can go get oil at this point either. I think we also have to keep this not divorced from the larger question of how does this affect individual people's finances and kind of their balance sheet. If you look at real disposable income per capita, which is a relatively obscure variable, but it's just kind of how much are you making adjusted for inflation from all sources of income, that number has actually declined almost every month now for four or five months in a row. In theory, in the long run, if inflation is nominal, then wages and salaries catch up, but there can be like a lagged effect there, so that can affect people's pocketbooks. Is hiring slowing down or accelerating as a result of inflation is another kind of related question. On the other hand, if you're a homeowner and home prices are increasing, you may benefit from inflation. If they're increasing faster than inflation overall, right, you might not think of it that way, but you might actually generate more wealth. And so, you know, again, I just want to encourage people not to focus on gas prices by themselves and think about how the economy is going overall. Yeah. And to that point, You know, we can look at history and we can make some predictions about how this might shape perceptions of Biden and Democrats. But what do we know about what has already happened in terms of Americans punishing Biden for inflation and high gas prices already or not? Does it seem like that's a significant part of the story of his, at this point, relatively high disapproval? You know, his disapproval rating is at 51 percent. His approval rating is at 43 percent. And that's after, you know, a two point or so increase since the start of the war in Ukraine. Well, what's sort of tricky about that, right, is, as you mentioned, is his recent tick up in approval since the Ukraine crisis. And gas prices have increased since then. So, you know, you could look at that and be like, oh, well, clearly Americans aren't giving Biden a hard time over the recent increase in gas prices. I think it's still way too early to know about that. But one thing that some researchers I talked to uh, spoke about was that what really matters now is whether Americans actually blame Biden for the gas price increases, right? So as Biden has sort of framed it, this is a Putin gas price increase. If, if voters actually buy that, then it could be the case that they don't actually blame him for the gas price increases. However, the Americans have blamed Biden so far for the overall inflation. So it doesn't seem like high gas prices are a good thing for Biden or anything like that. But I do think it's important to be wary that just having higher gas prices doesn't guarantee a lower uh, approval for Biden. I mean, I think it's important if you ask voters, give them a list of issues and say, what's the most important issue? Then inflation has led in those polls for a while now, more than COVID, for example, more than immigration, which is pretty high. 
So I think you have to take it as face value. I mean, to Santul's point, it is interesting that like you've had inflation going on for a while. It has multiple causes. Maybe having like a little bit of a scapegoat, maybe it is convenient <laughs> for Biden. I don't know. You know, we should mention, by the way, that you are now having fairly large scale shutdowns in China, which if they are having as much trouble containing Omicron as Hong Kong has, then that could disrupt supply chains, also cause further pressure on inflation. But yeah, look, I mean, the reality of presidential politics is that when things are going badly, the president gets blamed, whether it's his fault or not. Can I give an anecdote? It's so like Thomas Friedman and cheesy, but I'll give you like an anecdote, right? Okay, share it, and then we'll decide whether or not it gets cut. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Go ahead, Nate. I was at the Aria getting a slice of pizza last night. I mean, so relatable. Getting a slice of pizza is totally relatable. F*** you. I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, that's, that was 50% <laughs> facetious, 50% earnest. Okay. Which is how I always end. And the slice of pizza costs $8.29, I think. Um, it's a casino. Wait, what? What? Jesus. Yeah. What? <laughs> the f***? And the woman is $8.29, right? It's an okay slice of pepperoni pizza. And the, it's this woman who serves it. She looks like she's probably a liberal, right? And this other casino employee... <laughs> Wait, 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 sorry. She's a younger hip-looking woman. She's a younger hip-looking woman. This older casino employee goes up to her, and he tells her, when I'm kind of in earshot, getting my spice, I'm going to get all the, you know, the spices. What's this pepper and stuff, right? I'm putting all the cheese and pepper on. Chili flakes? The chili flakes and the Parmesan. If I'm paying $8.29 for a slice, I'm going to, like, Get my money's worth with the, with the chili flakes. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Just walk um, out with the condiments. <laughs> but he comes up to her, and I overhear him saying, "Lady, I know you're from a blue state, but this eight twenty nine pizza, our prices. This is why you have to vote Republican in twenty twenty two." He literally said that. It was just an example of like, there's no like actual claim he was making that made sense. It was not like Biden was a source of inflation, but just like things are frustrating. If you watch partisan media, Fox News will find ways to, on the one hand, say. We need to be harsh on Russia unless you're watching Tucker Carlson. On the other hand, say, oh, it's Biden's fault that inflation is high. And so it's it's effective political theatrics for the GOP. I'm going to give this two out of five Freedmans. Is higher or lower better? <laughs> you decide. <laughs> How did the woman respond? Uh, she kind of shrugged it up. I, I was I was eavesdropping. I wasn't like involving myself in the conversation. But that's so fat. It's like, but that, you know, you got to round out the story. Okay, I'll go back tonight and interview her. <laughs> I would add to this because I think this is interesting just in the context of like, the political context of like, oh, there's something that somebody in charge can do about to change this, which I'm not actually certain that there is when it comes to oil. Because like some of the rhetoric around this has been, oh, well, we just need to open up more U.S. oil production. And we already export more oil than we import. We already produce more oil than we actually use in the U.S. And there's this whole complicated, interesting thing happening where, like, back in the 90s, the oil companies put all this investment into refineries that were geared to a specific kind of oil, like a higher sulfur. They'll call it sour crude. And then the fracking boom happened, and that all happens to be a completely different kind of oil, which is sweet crude, that can't be processed by these facilities that they spent crap tons of money building. So we export the stuff that we produce here 
to Europe where they can process it. And we import sour crude here where we can process it. And like, there's not necessarily something that any president could really do to make more U.S. processable oil suddenly magically appear out of the U.S. Because like what we're already producing is not stuff we can actually refine here. And that's not going to change it. Okay, let's talk about this question specifically, which is what to do about it. So, of course, Republicans have blamed the Biden administration for basically barring any further permits for drilling on public land at the beginning of his administration. The Biden administration has responded saying that there are already thousands of permits out and that if they want to drill more, they can just use those permits for public land already. On top of that, domestic output is currently at 11 million barrels a day. Pre-pandemic, it was at 13 million barrels a day. So there is room to ramp up production as is. Just adding that information to sort of what you've just shared. There's talk of suspending taxes for gas on a federal or state level in some cases, The U.S. and 30 other countries agreed to release 60 million barrels from their strategic reserves. Is there an answer here? You explained one reason that it's complicated. But are either side right? Are the actions that they've taken so far realistic in terms of lowering the price of gas? Thinking about this, I don't actually know that there is a way to lower the price of gas right now. There's not a one weird trick that's going to make this better that somebody could do if they just had like the political willpower or the right ideology. And it's because of things like what I already talked about, where like some of the cost going up is traders having trader feelings. Some of it is actually tied to Russia. Some of it is actually tied to supply and demand, but not all of it. And I don't know exactly like what move you would make that would obviously and naturally fix this right now. Yeah, one problem with gas taxes is that the U.S. has very low gas taxes already. Our average gas tax per gallon at the fair level is around 60 cents per gallon. That's the lowest in the OECD countries except for Mexico, which has no gas tax at all, if I'm reading this chart correctly. The states will tack on somewhere between 10 and 60 cents per gallon on top of that. California is higher, for instance, than Alabama. But, you know, you can pull that lever and it wouldn't necessarily help all that much. Yeah, I mean, I wonder just how much of this is just about the pandemic supply chain at the end of the day. I think there are certain actions like the strategic reserve that seem like they could alleviate gas prices in the short term, easing sanctions on Venezuela, which I think has already gotten some blowback for Biden. And that's its own discussion, I think. But I do think that a lot of this is about like the pandemic supply chain. And when that comes back to normal, I think is when people will start to assess the economy as normal. And the timeline of that has just been pushed back and back and back. And the word transitory has been, I think, retired by the Fed to describe inflation. But it does seem that as more and more things keep happening to fracture this, whether it's the Ukraine crisis, whether it's the shutdown in Shenzhen, it doesn't seem like that normal is really coming anytime soon. Before we wrap up talking about gas prices and the politics of it all, Santuil, you mentioned that the White House had approached Venezuela. They've also approached Iran and Saudi Arabia about ramping up production. So it seems that the White House thinks that that's one potential answer for this. They have also talked about renewable energy and that long-term renewable energy is a solution to dependence on foreign oil, particularly from countries that don't share our values. 
to ask a similar question to what I already asked, are these realistic responses? Are getting authoritarian countries to ramp up production of oil something that we could see bringing down the price? And then longer term, is renewable energy going to fix this problem? Sort of detach geopolitics and energy from each other? Well, you, you know that my favorite answer to everything is like, it's complicated. So this is another one of those spaces also. I think that's 538's tagline, actually. It's called 538, It's Complicated. Then you need to tell Chad that because he tells me I can't have that be the thesis for all of my stories. <laughs> all right, Chad, listen up. <laughs> but I was trying to like do some digging into this in Europe last week because I was interested in like there's been a couple of things where... Germany and Belgium have kind of tossed the idea around of like, well, maybe we don't phase out our nuclear power as fast as we were talking about doing it so that we can get off of our reliance on Russian natural gas, which they are much more dependent on Russian natural gas there than we are dependent on Russian oil here. And so like that was kind of getting talked around. And I talked to a political scientist there who was pointing out like, well, the renewable energy is focused on electricity production. Most of Germany's natural gas use at this point is heating and industrial, and the renewable energy wouldn't necessarily solve that. Also, where does the uranium for the nuclear reactors come from? I'm going to guess. Uh, China? No, Kazakhstan. Okay. <laughs> which is an ally of Russia. And also they were pointing out that Ukraine has like all of this nuclear energy where have they been shipping their nuclear waste? Uh, Belarus? Russia. <laughs> Russia. So, like, there's all these ways that these things are interconnected that you don't necessarily expect, and that makes the solutions harder than you really want them to be. Could we reduce our dependence on oil through a whole bunch of different things like energy efficiency, better public transportation that requires less gasoline? Absolutely. But those aren't going to like, we're not going to be able to pull that off in like 30 days. Mm -hmm. In the short run, I mean, I'm just a simpleton here, but it seems like if the OPEC countries decided to increase production, that could offset declines from Russia. They are like on the order of two times as much when combined oil production is Russia itself. And so that could matter. I have no idea how the geopolitics works in terms of what incentives they have. But that is and could cause fluctuations in the short run. To close, we've talked a lot about how it's complicated TM and there are overlapping influences on the price of gas and the price of everything else, ranging from the war in Ukraine to supply chain issues to differential demand because of the pandemic, Fed policy, and also, of course, government stimulus spending. When we're talking about how to assess the performance of politicians and maybe blame them or not, historically, we know that politicians get blamed. Practically, can we say how much is decisions that people made somewhere along the way are responsible for this versus this was inevitable? I think it's harder to say that people made decisions knowing this would be the outcome. I think it's more of a butterfly flaps its wings in somebody's office and this is what happens. Yeah, I mean, I go back to how like the inflation that we're seeing right now has, it's because of COVID for the most part. I mean, like there is an effect of the stimulus that is perhaps why the United States has had higher inflation than Europe and higher gas prices. They have their own dynamics, right? But I think... To the extent that that was a decision, I don't think 
that was a decision on anyone's part. And when it goes to Russia and Ukraine, you know, there's like a longer term sort of timeline in terms of if the U.S. had acted a certain way with Russia, if Russia had, had acted a certain way, if Russia hadn't invaded Ukraine, then this wouldn't really be a conversation. So, um, no, too shy. Yeah, but I mean, I think it's sort of difficult to, at least right now, look at any sort of decisions that have been made by the White House and say, okay, this is why we're seeing higher gas prices. Well, Santul, you said that in large part, this all comes back to COVID, and we're going to talk about COVID, and we're going to use a trivia game to do it. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. It's been two years since the United States shut down in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. I think March 11th is considered the day that everything changed. It's the day that the World Health Organization officially referred to COVID as a pandemic. It's also the day the NBA suspended its season, Trump banned travel from Europe, and most importantly, Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson announced that they had tested positive from COVID-19. So to mark this anniversary, we're going to play a game that we're calling the United Stats of America. There is an accompanying video series on 538's YouTube page if you want some more. But essentially, you have to guess how Americans are feeling or what they're doing based on the polls. And the theme for today is how American life changed during the two years since that fateful March 11th. Are you all ready for this? Sure. Let's do it. How do you guys remember March 11th? I attempted to make a Paris breast with some friends. What's that? It's like a choux pastry stuffed with hazelnut cream situation. That sounds amazing and exactly the kind of thing you need in the event of a pandemic. Right, exactly. Yeah, we failed at the shoe, we succeeded at the cream, and then like that was like the last time I saw any other humans other than my children for like two months. (laughs) That's that's such an interesting memory. Nate Santuol? I mean, it it was the day after these really important primaries that basically resulted in Joe Biden wrapping up the Democratic nomination. 
and eight days after Super Tuesday. So I've been running all around to primary states and conferences, and that's a busy time of year in general, and then was flying that day to Kansas City to see my partner's family. And like on the flight, it all starts happening. Trump announces that there's a travel ban. Tom Hanks tests positive. Rudy Gobert tests positive. The NBA season is like shut down. So you're like literally flying into like a different world, it felt like. I got off the ground and my Uber driver didn't care about Tom Hanks. He was a huge NBA NBA guy, though. So it was like, Rudy Gobert, oh, my God, this is serious, right? <laughs> and then I got barbecue. And then it was one of the last meals I ate in person for several months. Was someone remotely eating for you? Remotely eating for me? What do you mean? You said <laughs> it was one of the last meals you ate in person <laughs> in for person. months. In a restaurant. <laughs> in person, yeah. Santo, how do you remember it? I remember walking back from the train that night and seeing the news about the NBA shutting down. And I had a, one of my good friends was had, against his better judgment, I think, decided to visit Europe when all this news was breaking. And I, I remember feeling like just in like a pit of hopeless despair for about like two hours. But then like after a couple of days, it seemed like you'd be able to fly back and all that. But the news of the NBA shutting down just like really like to me, that was like the sign of everything was going to be different very soon. Yeah. I'm amazed at how many people like gauged everything by the NBA. Like I just was <laughs> not tied into that at all. Yeah. I think it all happening at once made it all seem like mm-hmm. a big deal to me. But similarly, I don't really track the NBA. I was actually at the final performance uh, at Radio City Music Hall for 15 months, which was Riverdance. And at the time... <laughs> We, I got tickets with a fr- with some friends, basically as a joke. You don't have to Weeks justify in advance, to me, Galen. And it <laughs> ended up being the last performance at Radio City Music Hall. It was two thirds empty. I think a lot of people were already wary about going to places with thousands of people inside. I was not. Um, I didn't want to work from home. I still wanted to go to Radio City Music Hall, but that was that was, that was my experience of it all. And then. The next performance at Radio City Music Hall was Dave Chappelle's documentary. Wow. 15 months later. Yeah. Riverdance was kind of, it was, I don't know, it's kind of a, a beautiful way to close out a, an era, <laughs> which was like normal life. But let's talk about how life has changed since that day for Americans. So the first question, and we're going to rotate who answers first. Nate, you can kick us off. What percentage of Americans report that they are drinking more alcohol than they were before COVID. Now, let me give you this caveat. It is as of January, 2022. So I'm not talking about those first two months of the pandemic. I'm saying two years later, after all of this, what percentage of Americans still say they're drinking more than before COVID? I'd say 37% say they're drinking more. Maggie? Mm-hmm. 38%. Wow, wow. I'm play this like Price is Right. All right, Fantool. Are you going to be as strategic? I'll go with 45%. 45%? Guys, it's 11%. Wow. Okay. So I don't know what oh. kind of projections you're all <laughs> making on the American people. Uh, 100% of this podcast, or maybe not. Apparently. <laughs> What's the breakdown? It is 68% of adults say they're not drinking more. 19% say they do not drink alcoholic beverages. It is because you can like actually get data on this from things like alcohol sales. And my understanding was that alcohol sales are up. So maybe people are, I don't know. I don't know. I'm a little suspicious. People are lying. A lot of that data, though, was from early pandemic, not from two years into the pandemic. 
Hmm. Well, maybe. Also, okay, so what are they comparing to? That's true. alcohol sales is complicated because people were like not going to bars and just buying alcohol themselves. Anyway, Nate, you don't have to argue this because that point still goes to you. You had the lowest okay. or closest guess to uh, what it actually was. Moving on. What percentage of Americans say their romantic relationship has improved since the COVID outbreak two years ago? We're going to start with Santul this time. Okay. I'll go with 19%. 19%. Okay. Maggie? I would say 30. 30. Nate? I'm just going to go 31. I think I'm going to get this point. Santul, you got it right. It is 16% ah. of Americans say that their relationships have gotten better since the COVID outbreak. I was not pessimistic enough. 74% said that their relationships have stayed the same. However, there is more data here, which kind of will elaborate. During the pandemic, relationship satisfaction actually reached a high of 70%, which is the highest satisfaction rate since Monmouth started asking the question in 2014. So that's like... Not bad. Good job, Americans. I feel like these are kind of trick questions. So people are more satisfied, but they aren't improved. Maybe the bar for improvement's really high. I, I'm, I'm, I don't know. Maybe it is. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. So that point went to Santul. Okay, so Nate won, Santul won. Maggie, let's get you on the board. And you are going first with this one. So as of May 2021, so that's a little over one year into the pandemic, what percentage of American households had adopted a dog or pet? during the previous year slash during the pandemic? I'm going to say, I'm, I'm going to say 30. 30, okay. Uh, Nate? Adopted or acquired? <laughs> <laughs> this is specifically adopted. So I guess if you purchased your dog from a breeder, you don't count. 8%. 8%. Sensual? I go 11%. 11%, and you got it, Santul. 19% of households had adopted a dog or cat during the first year plus of the pandemic. This poll was conducted by the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, so the ASPCA. I don't know if there might be claims of bias here, but that is the data that we have. They're biased in favor of not torturing animals, Galen, not an objective source. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so Santul, you have two points. Nate, you have one point. Let's go back to the beginning, which is Nate, you starting off. What percentage of Americans took on a new hobby during the first year of the pandemic? Do the hobbies include worrying about COVID? <laughs> <laughs> wow, so real. Well, one of them included reading. So if you're reading the news, then I guess that's a new hobby. But that's what I got for you. 63%. Okay. Maggie? 65. All right. Santuel? 46. Okay, Nate, you got this one. 59% of Americans took wow. on a new hobby during the coronavirus pandemic. So do you guys want to guess what the most common hobbies were? Bread. <laughs> that, that was the second most common. So baking or cooking, 36%. Running? Hmm. Mm. That is not one. one of the top ones. Oh, man. Uh, the closest is maybe meditation at 29%. <laughs> Gaming? Video games? That's also not one of the top. So the, here, here are the top ones. Reading, 61%. Baking or cooking, 36%. Gardening, 30%. Meditation, 29%. Writing, 
26%. I don't know whether or not that included writing tweets for the record. I feel like there's some like non-response bias here. It's way it's too all wholesome. really wholesome. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what I was thinking. Like, mm, there are definitely some <laughs> How things that some can hobbies, you be trapped alone in your house? <laughs> there are definitely some hobbies that people pick up that they're not sharing here. We don't have to Drug mention use. what they were. We don't have to, we don't even have to allude to them. Maybe we already have. Okay, so Nate and Santul, you are tied. I have a tiebreaker, which either will result in one of you winning or putting Maggie on the board, and then you're all winners. Okay, so this question, Santul, you start. So this polling from Pew was conducted during the pandemic about a year and a half in to sort of get a sense of how Americans ascribe meaning to life, both the good and the bad, especially during this sort of existential period of time in American life. So here's the question. What percentage of Americans agreed with the statement, at least somewhat, that Satan is responsible for most of the suffering in the world? Satan? Like... The devil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the devil. Like okay. Satan, Satan. Okay. Oh, man. Um, like any any devil, like, like non-denominational or? Non-denominational. So Satan. they just asked Satan. That's the exact word that they used in this poll. Okay. I'm going to say 23%. 23%. Okay, Nate? 27%. 27%. Okay, Maggie? 19. 19%. So, wait, Nate, you got it, but you still weren't all that close. So 44% of U.S. adults said that Satan is responsible for most of the suffering in the world. Man. In a Pew Hmm. poll from September 2021. Is Satan raising gas prices? Have we considered this? (laughs) Yeah, why can't Biden just blame Satan? (laughs) I mean, we're joking. Obviously, religion does play a big role in politics, and... uh, Maybe we should talk more about it. But we should. to put a finer point on this, the 44% of U.S. adults said that that statement reflects their view very well or somewhat well. I think it's possible that there is bias here in terms of like you give people five answers instead of two answers. And there's oh, going to be or somewhat. Okay. more in the middle. But like 44% of Americans are reasonably open to Satan being responsible for most of the suffering in the world. Hmm. And on that note, Nate, you hmm. won. <laughs> Woo! Satan. <laughs> I blame Satan for Nate's win. Uh, I mean, so do 44% of Americans. <laughs> <laughs> so a reminder that you can hear or see more United Stats of America, except with strangers responding to these questions, if you head over to the 538 YouTube page, or you can find me on Twitter and you'll see those videos. So go check it out. Let's wrap with our good or bad use of polling example. Today's good or bad use of polling example is a little complicated, so give me a minute to lay it all out here. Last week, Scientific American published an article suggesting one way that pollsters could make surveys more accurate particularly when asking about sensitive subjects. So the article starts from the premise that some voters may be shy about their support for Republican candidates, which I don't think we agree with. But even if you disagree with that premise, what the author, Dennis Shasha, suggests about how to pull on sensitive issues stuck out. So let's focus on that part, even if you disagree with the shy Trump voter theory, which I think in general we disagree with. So The strategy involves flipping a coin. Here's how it works. 
Say you are polling Putin's popularity in Russia, to bring up a topic that we discussed last week. You say to the respondent as the pollster, go somewhere private and flip this coin. If the result is tails, I want you to tell me that you disapprove of Putin. If it's heads, I want you to tell me what your real opinion is. And so given that disapproval is perhaps the more sensitive answer in that case, the respondent can give that answer without the pollster knowing if it's their real opinion or the result of a coin flip. Once you do this at scale, since you know that the probability of a coin flip is 50-50, essentially, you should have an equal likelihood of getting heads or tails, you can correct the results to reveal the sample's true preferences anonymously. Did that make sense to people? And is that a good or bad use of polling? You know what this reminds me of? The thing in D&D where like, you meet the two guys outside the door and one of them can only tell a lie and one of them can only tell the truth and then you have to figure out. Ugh, Maggie, this is where the cultural divide comes too big. I, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> it's that just a D&D thing, right? I mean, haven't you heard this joke or this meme well, I guess before? It's not just a D&D. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I'm sorry. But moving off of things that Galen doesn't know, is this a good or bad use of polling? I'm trying to think about the mechanics of this exact design, right? But in principle, something like this seems like it's a clever use of polling. Sure. Does everyone agree? I think it seems interesting. I trust Nate if he says the math makes sense. <laughs> I don't know. I'd have to think about it for like another six minutes or something, right? I'm always curious about like the mechanics of getting people's time and interest in answering polls to begin with. And it's interesting to me to add like a layer of like, okay, now you got to go do this physical activity. Would that end up reducing the number of people who actually wanted to participate in your poll? Right. Maybe it's a clever use of polling, but is it a realistic use of polling in the sense that yeah. in theory, fantastic. In practice, maybe not. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I agree with Maggie. I think just adding more layers to it just seems like it would it would be confusing. I, I don't know. Yeah, that seems true that you don't want like people to like, you know, we're not having a bunch of like super like rational people. Maybe you're making too many assumptions about human nature in terms of how this is baked in or so devils in the details. Satan's devils in the details. In the details. <laughs> now I got to go find a coin. <laughs> Let's try this internally at 538. What question could we ask that we would need people to flip a coin before they told their real their real true answers? Oh, geez. Do you know that I will sometimes, like, flip a coin to figure out, like, where to go to dinner? I didn't know that, but that's yeah. so on brand that almost doesn't sound real. <laughs> My eight-year-old is learning how to flip a coin, which actually turns out to be a very difficult physical task because uh, she's learning how to play Pokemon. And apparently coin flipping is important somehow in the playing of Pokemon. And so we had to have a conversation about how just tossing it up in the air without it spinning is not, that that doesn't actually count. You don't get to win your heads, tails, coin toss if you didn't even turn the coin when you threw it. <laughs> um, Nate, is there like a certain way that you have to flip a coin in order to get a true 50-50 probability? Probably, but it's close enough. It's just an excuse to like not have to dwell on not very important decisions. How often do you flip the coin and then do the opposite of what the coin tells you to do? Sometimes, see that, but it still <laughs> reveals a preference then, right? It's like, oh, I really didn't want Thai food. I want like pizza, mm -hmm. $8.29. $8, yeah, back, back to where we started, <laughs> $9 pizza. <laughs> what the f again? I just don't, I don't know. 
Santu, we'll close us out. What's your relationship to coin flipping? I just don't really carry around. I, I used to have like a coin pouch in my wallet, but then I got a new wallet. So now I just don't carry on coins. So I, I don't know like how I how I settle these decisions. I, I guess I sort of just go with my gut. Santul, the Gen Z member of this podcast, doesn't even know what a coin is. <laughs> well, fair enough. I guess we'll leave that at clever use of polling. Does anyone reading good, bad, clever, confusing. unrealistic, clever, confusing, clever? Okay, Nada. I'll go good. It. They're trying. Okay, they're trying. I'm, All right. I'm good. Clever, if maybe overly elaborate. Okay. All right. Well, listeners, tell us what you think, or if you have other examples of polling that you would like us to judge in our good or bad use of polling segment, send them our way. Let's leave it there for now. Thank you so much, Maggie Santool and Nate. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigari-Curtis is on audio editing. Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director. And Emily Vineski is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.